Clovis, building a healthy life together. What's up, everybody? Justin Knoll here with another episode of the Clovis Culture Podcast. Okay, so this episode is absolutely crazy. I just finished editing all of the audio for this release, and it just blew my mind how much information is crammed into this about a 90-minute episode. And the funny thing is, this episode has exactly nothing to do with health and wellness. My guest today is Garrett Gunderson. And Garrett is the founder of Wealth Factory and is a best-selling author. He's written multiple books on the topic of finance, personal finance, and particularly business finances, and the interesting world of finance for entrepreneurs. That's kind of his specialty. And what I love about this episode, and and you'll find this out very quickly early in the episode, that personal finance is exactly like nutrition. Virtually all of us have been led astray by the quote-unquote experts and the mainstream for decades now. And it's really interesting because I'm recording this intro on day whatever the hell of the global coronavirus pandemic where everybody is... For the most part, most of us are practicing social distancing, and many states at this point are now in this shelter-in-place lockdown, or whatever you want to call it, and we seem to be in this perfect storm of the last six or seven decades just completely coming back to bite us in the ass as an entire population. And what I mean by that is it's now abundantly clear that the people at the biggest risk factor of COVID-19 complications are those with poor metabolic health. So literally, the food pyramid over the last six decades has made us incredibly susceptible as a human species to COVID-19. It's probably the worst time in history that an illness like this could have hit us because so many people, over 88% of the population, are so susceptible to this. Now, at the same exact time, people are watching their retirement, their life savings, their steady stream of income just collapse and fall apart. And what you'll hear Garrett and I talk about is we are both firm believers that you need to be in complete control of your own financial situation. You need to be in complete control of your income streams. You need to be in complete control of your investments, of your liquidity, of your cash flow. All of these things need to be completely in your control, not being controlled by forces outside of your own control. It just doesn't make any sense, right? So here we are in this terrifying time where people's health is completely failing them and people's entire financial blueprint or foundation is completely failing them. People are learning that, The way Americans view personal finance in 2020 is basically a house of cards that can crumble at any moment. Panicked stock market sell-offs from the coronavirus can cripple the entire economy in a matter of weeks. And you can just watch everything evaporate. You'll hear us talk about this in the episode, but we're going to talk about the accumulation philosophy. So think about somebody who spent the last 35 years with the accumulation philosophy. They turn 65 years old and they retire at the end of 2019. And then coronavirus hits and they watch 30, 40% maybe of their entire net worth melt down in a two-week time period. That's so sad. I can't even wrap my head around it. So I'm just unbelievably grateful that I was able to record this episode with Garrett, that he was so generous with his time. I kept him for so long. I was basically like an information vampire, just trying to get as much information as I could get out of this dude's brain because he's so brilliant. His entire philosophy around money has literally changed my life. And I think it will change your life too, if you really take it to heart. And the timing of this episode just could not 
be better because guys, I promise you, the world is not ending. Life will go on. This is not going to completely wipe out our species. There will be a future for the global economy. And there is no better time than now. Even if this thing kind of kicked your ass, there's no better time than now to reevaluate the way you handle your finances, to reevaluate the way you think about your career, the way you think about your retirement, your future, your cash flow. There could not be a better time for this episode and a better time for you to really do the deep work and analyze how you've been handling these things up until now and how you should maybe consider changing them going forward. And just a bit of a fair warning here, this might be just as difficult for you as it was to start adopting Clovis principles in terms of nutrition and fitness because a lot of the advice that you're going to get here runs exactly counter to everything that you've been told by the mainstream for literally the last five or six decades when it comes to personal finance. We are going to challenge some serious belief systems here and you may find that you're holding a lot of the false beliefs that we outline in this episode and that's okay because the name of the game with Clovis is always self-awareness. We need to identify the mental prisons that you might be caught in before we can do the work to correct them. And that's what this episode is really going to do. It's going to bring these false beliefs to the forefront and allow you to address them properly. Whereas up until now, you might not have even known that you were holding these false beliefs. Now, before we dive in, I just want to share this website with you because it is a fantastic resource that Garrett and his team at Wealth Factory have put together. You can just go to wealthfactory.com slash podcast. Again, wealthfactory.com slash podcast podcast. And there you will find something called the Cashflow Mega Kit, which Garrett is giving you for free. And it's ridiculous. It involves cashflow recovery tools, financial strength checklist, the cashflow investors toolkit, his books like Killing Sacred Cows and What Would the Rockefellers Do? It's just an astronomically powerful bundle of information that you can get. Just go to wealthfactory.com slash podcast. As always, I'm going to provide show notes with links and resources for everything that we discuss in this podcast, and you will be able to find those at clovis.show slash wealthfactory, clovis.show slash wealthfactory. All right, I know this intro has become super long. I can't help it. I have just become super passionate about this topic and am crazy excited to bring you this episode. So please enjoy this conversation with Garrett Gunderson. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to this podcast and leave me a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. I know that leaving a podcast review can be quite tricky, so I have made this as easy as possible for you. All you have to do is visit ratethispodcast.com slash Clovis. Again, ratethispodcast.com slash Clovis. I've also included this link in the show notes, so you can just click that link and it will show you a list of podcast platforms. Select your favorite podcast platform and you will see step-by-step on-screen instructions for exactly how to leave a podcast review. Each and every review counts. It really, really helps and it truly means the world to me. Thank you. As always, this episode is brought to you by Clovis. I am the founder and CEO of Clovis and I am in the business of changing people's lives for the better. I am a certified nutritional therapist and I have helped over 1,000 people just like you transform their health and wellness. And I want to work with you. To prove it, I'm going to give you a free seven-day trial, which will give you full-blown access to all of the exclusive members-only content that Clovis has to offer. Just visit IamClovis.com start. 
I-A-M-C-L-O-V-I-S.com slash start. You will find videos of yours truly and you will find some incredible transformation stories from real life Clovis clients. You will be shocked by the incredible stories that these brave individuals have to tell. Stories of full-blown life transformation. 50 pounds in eight weeks, 40 pounds in 60 days, 19 pounds in 21 days, 100 pounds in six months, you name it, I have a client who has done it. And you can too. Check out IamClovis.com slash start and get started with your free trial today. If you'd like to check out my physical products, I am offering you a very special deal on the Perfect Paleo Powder. 30% off your first purchase. In fact, that 30% discount will be applied to your entire cart for your first purchase at IamClovis.com. Head over to IamClovis.com, check out the Perfect Paleo Powder and all the other products that I have available, and you will get 30% off your first purchase. Just use promo code PERFECTPODCAST, all one word, P-E-R-F-E-C-T-P-O-D-C-A-S-T. Perfect Podcast, all one word. Apply this discount code at checkout, and you will receive 30% off your entire first Order. Just visit IamClovis.com to grab this special deal. All right, let's get on with the episode. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? Justin Nall here with another episode of the Clovis Culture Podcast. I am extremely excited about my guest today because we're going to venture away from the land of fitness and nutrition for a little while, and we're going to talk about all things personal finance, and I couldn't have asked for a better guest to clear some of this stuff up uh, for you guys. And my guest today is Garrett Gunderson. He is the founder of Wealth Factory and a best-selling author and all-around financial genius. Garrett, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, man. Good to be here. You know? Sure thing, brother. I appreciate it. I'm kind of shocked to have you. I'm having a little bit of like celebrity moment here. I'm sorry. I like it, man. Uh, I've been eating healthy today, got my workout in, so I'm prepared, you know? Perfect, man. I would imagine that a brain like yours can't work at the capacity that it does without without having those things at least a little bit handled. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, was, I think I've been a little bit more loose about my, my nutrition for the last year, but uh, been very consistent for a long time now with, uh, with overall working out and sleep and, you know, some of those major factors. So Cool, man. That's great. That actually brings me to a little bit of a story. I want to tell um, just the audience how we met. I've now been talking to you up like crazy all week in my in my Facebook groups, and we'll have some questions we'll hit later from clients and everything. But um, yeah, so I, I actually, well, one, I want to apologize in advance if I ever get long-winded because full disclosure, I am now a client of Wealth Factory. I have been for, God, six to eight months or something like that. And it's just been a whirlwind of you just changing my mind on everything. It's been ridiculous. And now I know what Rob meant. I was introduced to your work by our mutual friend, Rob Wolf. And he had this, he posted this random selfie of you two. And he was like, I think of my life in two phases, like pre-Garrett and post-Garrett. So I reached out to him. I said, who's this dude? And he like confirmed everything that you guys had done for him. And I, I think I was a client of yours like less than 48 hours later. I think it was that quick. What's awesome is, so Rob is attending one of our workshops, right? And he comes okay. up and he's like, hey man, uh, can you sign my book? Like, you know, the book, that Killing Sacred Cows. And I look and I'm like, why does he look so familiar? And I look down his name tag, I'm like, if you sign my book, man, I'm like Paleo Solution, <laughs> rocked my world when I read it. Like, I'm gonna go to my house, I'm gonna get it. And so I signed his book, he signed mine. I've always been an admirer of his stuff, so. 
I love that, man. That's so cool. I love how the universe works like that. And speaking of the universe, man, I want to talk about how you got here because I've, you know, I have read all of your books now. I've consumed all your content, your YouTube videos, your podcast, everything, man. I just like am all down the rabbit hole. So I just want to let people know that that your background, I mean, the way you grew up and everything didn't scream financial genius, you know? So can you tell people how you got here? Yeah, man, I'm, I'm a, from a coal mining town in uh, the South Central area of Utah called Price. And uh, a lot of coal mines down there, Carbon County, my my dad, my grandfathers, my great grandfather, all coal miners. So, you know, they didn't know a lot about money. They just kind of knew a lot about hard work. And what's funny is I've never stepped a foot in a, in a coal mine. My mom was adamantly opposed to it. My dad, I told him like a year ago, I'm like, I'm gonna take my boys and show them a coal mine. He goes, why the hell would you do that? Like he, <laughs> he's still, he's still charged up about it, you know? So um, what happened was I had a business and I was just detailing cars because I was playing sports. And so I wanted to have more money, but I couldn't really hold a full-time or part-time job because of the inconsistency of traveling for baseball or basketball. So I just started detailing cars because my dad's coal mining vehicles that he'd have to bring home for the bosses. I helped him clean them. My mom worked at a credit union. I started to clean the repossessed vehicles and that got me my start. And I won 500 bucks when I was uh, 16 years old for young entrepreneur. I took third place. The next year I took first place. Then I took for the state with all those winnings it was $6,500 which isn't a lot of money but to me was a lot of money and I want to learn how to invest it so I went down this road of like what could I do with this money and uh, that got me into the world of finance I made mistakes when I was 18 investing it in a stock market that was overhyped then it was going to over deliver and then just was infinitely curious and met a money manager that was my professor and at 19, I became friends with him and he became a client while I was still in college because I learned a few strategies that were out of his wheelhouse, even though he mentored me early on. And we, he's still a client 20 some years later now. So uh, that was pretty instrumental. And I just went on this trek when I was a junior where I would just fly somewhere every month to interview or attend an event to learn how finance really worked. And because I had to learn and I didn't have a lot of background, I just learned how to ask questions that other people didn't know how to ask. And I didn't have like a, I didn't have a dog in the fight, man. Like whatever the answer was, didn't really matter to me. I just want to figure it out. So I wasn't married. I didn't have a lot of loans to pay off. I, you know, I didn't have a lot to lose. So I didn't have this kind of bias that a lot of people have in, in this search because they're relying on a paycheck. I wasn't relying on that at that point. And so it was a, a huge advantage. One, because I was young, people would talk to me. Like people will talk to young people who are ambitious. It's such an advantage. And people are like, oh, dude, you know, once you get older, I'm like, once I get older, like I, I have ins that no one else has right now. Yeah. And, and so I just was, I wanted to learn. I was fascinated. My wife last night, we were watching something and someone did the cheesiest joke in finance. We are watching some show and she goes, that's how you used to be. Yeah, you used to be like that. <laughs> you and Les, and as my old business partner, I'm like, ouch, yeah. She's just straight up calling me a nerd, man. Like, right. no punches pulled. So that's a lot of the background right there. That's cool, man. And I know you, you talk about experiences with your wife too, because well, one, I want to touch on just, just how similar this is to fitness and nutrition. I tell people this all the time. It's like, I came into this by accident, man. I've been a, a professional musician. I still am for 17 years. I don't pay myself with my nutrition company. So it's like, I don't have a dog in the fight. It just became this, I dug deep and I had done well in the music industry. So I had free time to research and just found that everything mainstream was like horrific advice. 
you know? So I started sharing this and it's kind of what I say when I, I've introduced a lot of people to your work now. And I kind of give this warning, the same warning I give with myself where I'm like, Hey, you start consuming my content, like fair warning. It's, it's a lot of this stuff is going to go directly against what the mainstream is telling you to do. And the crazy thing about that is I like to tell people in the world of health and wellness, we're dealing with a population that's 85% overweight and obese. And yet around the dinner table, everyone has these super strong held beliefs in nutrition and they don't really know why. And now that I've gone down the rabbit hole of your content, finance seems to be the same way, man. And I mean, I think you'll know the statistics better than I do, but it's something like 80% of people can't afford a $400 emergency but they have these really strong beliefs about like their 401k or their investing and, and all this. And I think it's just a, it starts with, with, I know that you start with philosophy and that's why I brought up, uh, you have some funny stories I heard you tell about with, with your wife, your philosophy wasn't always this abundance mindset. And like, how do you, how do you get that abundance mindset and abundance versus scarcity in the world of finance? I think you call it like the, the greatest destroyer of wealth, right? Yeah. Scarcity destroys wealth faster and more, there's more like just reach of scarcity than any other thing. And like, you know, I was first married. It's amazing. I'm still married because I was a straight up miser, straight yeah. up miser. Like my wife. So I gave this TEDx talk in January and I told a couple of miser stories. And so I call my wife, I'm with one of my clients and one of my guys that runs my company. It's a friend. And then my client brought someone with them and we're just riding in the car. And I'm like, Hey, it went well, I got a standing ovation. I was like super pumped up. I'm like, I told stories about, being a miser. And then all of a sudden my wife chimes in with all these additional stories and everybody in the car is cracking up. I'm like, Whoa, oh, I can't hear you. We're breaking up. Shit. <laughs> like, because dude, I was such a miser that for Christmas one year, I bought her a phone that what uh, a case for her phone that didn't fit the phone. Cause it was cheap. Okay. Like, like it didn't even fit the phone. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, like, yeah. no, it was, it was a dollar. Like, so we <laughs> saved a bunch of money. She's like, but it doesn't fit the phone. Exactly. And, like her dad was like, Hey, you, you want to move into the basement? Cause like you guys could just live there rent free. So I go to my wife, I'm like, dude, we get to live in your parents' basement rent free. She goes sex free with that strategy too. And I was like, Oh <laughs> damn. So I was like, yeah, dude, I was a miser. I read the millionaire next door. And yeah. so my life was about what I could cut out and eliminate. And I had this epiphany that that's a very finite game. That's very limited because it's really selfish. Like you don't think of it as selfish when you're in it. You think of it as like, smart yeah. or, you know, doing things other people aren't willing to do and sacrificing. And my mantra was, I'll live like no one else lives now. So in the future, I can live like no one else can. Mm -hmm. and my dad was like, hey, I respect that, but I don't think that's the right philosophy. He says, because you can never buy back the memories you never have. Mm. Ah, Huge. so what happened was I, was I was at this thing in Vegas where I was getting an award and there was like a thousand people there. And after I got the award, I was out in the hallway and I see this woman, Nancy. And actually the event where, um, where uh, Rob, uh, you know, heard me mm -hmm. the first time, the, Nancy happened to be in the crowd. Now this is like 17 years later, but when I got this award, Nancy and I were talking because she, I highly respected her. She was well known in the financial industry. And uh, I started telling her, you know, hey, I'm excited about this. I'm excited to meet you. I'd love to learn from you. She goes, really, would you like? So, so she starts asking me questions. Mm. And she sees immediately, dude, I am in scarcity. Like I'm a miser. Yeah. And she says these words. She goes, I wonder what it's like living in the financial prison that you built for your wife. Oh, because my wife's a teacher and I won't buy her clothes. Her mom's buying your clothes. I'm making six figures at this time. We're living wow. in a crappy apartment where we can afford something much, much nicer. But I was like, no, no, no. 
we're going to save, we're going to scrimp, we're going to budget. I was, I was that miser. And when she said those words, dude, it hit me. Mm. And I called my wife and I was like, Hey, I'm sorry. I'm an asshole. Like I, I didn't see it, but now I see it. And my wife was really cool and forgiving, but I actually started crying. And then people get let out of the session. I'm just sitting there cheering <laughs> up like, Oh, look at that kid. He's so proud of his award, you know, or whatever right, it was. Right. But it was actually just recognizing how much scarcity had grabbed me. But dude, I learned it. I learned yeah. it from my family. You know, imagine my great grandfather leaves Italy, leaves his wife who's pregnant behind because he can't afford to bring her over at the time to get a job in a coal mine to send money back and doesn't see them for seven years. That creates a lot of scarcity, like almost at a cellular level. It creates a paradigm where it's like, scrimp and save and sacrifice it's almost like this is immigrant mentality and it really had a stranglehold on me until that moment yeah now it wasn't yeah. like i had an epiphany and, and never had scarcity again but it was a paradigm shift that was crazy because that next year i made double what i made the year before and we bought our dream home and like that home was we loved it like i used to bring people over we hosted monthly parties we had theme parties we you know we just had so much fun and so many good memories we're in our apartment we could never do that. Yeah. So that's part of like the transition for me of leaving behind scarcity and embracing abundance. And then I can at least now detect when it's coming up. I can sense when it's there so I can make different choices because I have very specific formulas. Yeah. The crazy thing too, is I feel like I was so drawn to this abundance principle. I mean, it's particularly anything mindset, growth mindset versus fixed mindset and all that abundance versus scarcity, but man, you're going against the grain. Cause it's not just like, there is a very real thing called transgenerational epigenetics of like, I believe epigenetics is what I'm here to heal, man. Yeah. I'm doing the epigenetic work right now. Right? Like I'm, I'm going into like, where did this come from? You know, it's imprinted cellularly. Why do I believe this? Yeah. Where are we holding on to this anger? Like generational healing is a big part of my mission now. Epigenetics, you nailed it, dude. I call it genetic wealth. And I didn't come up with that term. I learned it from the book, Deep Nutrition. Okay. Yeah. That was a great book, man. Yeah. Yeah. Genetic wealth. It sounds crazy to people, but it really, like, I look back, like my dad's a self-made guy, right? He has no college degree, grew up on welfare and made millions of dollars. But hit you know that scarcity mindset being one of seven kids, you know you get like a pair of socks for Christmas. So what what I fell into that never it honestly in my gut it never felt right to me, and I was just kind of doing it because everyone was doing it is the accumulation philosophy. So I'm just looking at this like I had a 401k even as a musician. It was crazy as a musician to have a 401k and health benefits, but I did. So I was in the 401k game, and I'm thinking of this accumulation thing. Then I start getting into nutrition. I'm like, these people that are 65 years old retiring, they're not healthy enough to do anything fun. No. So it's like, they're just put it off, put it off, put it off. And most people are working jobs they hate. Thankfully, I wasn't in that scenario. Which is part of the disease and malnutrition anyway, because if you hate your job, yes. that's going to impact your health, man. Dude, 100%. You know, there's no doubt the stress that's just chronic and it's in the background all the time. Absolutely. So, so how do you, how do you shift people out of this, this accumulation philosophy? Well, I guess let's, let's just explain the core differences here because we're, we're using words like accumulation philosophy, which people might even not know what we're talking about, which is basically just the scrimp and save, put your money away in traditional investments like 401k and hope you have enough money to outlive you when you retire versus your philosophy. What are kind of the core differences there? So I'll break down accumulation is that people believe, people believe these fundamental things in accumulation. It takes money to make money, high risk equals high return, and you're in it for the long haul. Now, if we break that down, it's money times rate times time. So it's set money aside, wait for 30 years, and hope that it grows. 
It's very linear, but people believe it's exponential. They think it's going to be this hockey stick through compounding interest, but compounding interest because of fees, because of volatility, because of companies not making it in the long haul, because you know companies go out of business and people don't account for that in their returns. Mm. We've just seen that 95% of people are not economically independent at age 65. That's mm. the US Department of Labor statistics. So that's a 95% failure rate. I kind of look at that like the food pyramid. Yes. It's so antiquated. It doesn't work, but it's been the thing that everybody's worked, you know, worked from or believed in if they never questioned it. And when do you find out the food pyramid doesn't work is when you're in disease, when you're overweight, when you're like, but I had my six to 11 servings of bread and I had my <laughs> minimal, minimal fats. And, you know, I, I did at least it meant some fruits and vegetables a little bit, you know, but it's yeah. a pretty, and, and that's kind of what happens with our money is everyone's selling us these things that they're not buying themselves. A bank doesn't believe that you're in it for the long haul. They look for immediate cash flow. You know, Wall Street doesn't believe it takes money to make money. It believe it's your money they're going to make money on, right? You know, right. And and so if we just dissect this, and we're like, well, the alternative is how the economy works, which is velocity. So velocity is a simple equation: GDP, which is our output, divided by M2, which is the money supply. So the number of times the dollars exchange hands in a given year tells us what the velocity is, right? So if I buy something from you, you get to take that money, you get to use it again, whoever you buy, you know, and that money. So if we can have that money circulate, you know, even if that's a finite amount of money, the number of times it circulates expands wealth. Exchange creates that wealth. Accumulation doesn't have us consider exchange. It just has us consider slowly accumulating over time. So how does this work in our personal finances? If we take our output divided by our input, that tells us our velocity. So how do we increase velocity? Three ways. Now, the slowest and most dangerous way is what most people try to do. They budget. Right. Right. They go, I'll lower my lifestyle. I'll defer my enjoyment. I'll do reductionist thinking. But no one really drinks their way to wealth. But yes, it might mean that they end up with more money. Right. But they might not enjoy life. So the two other ways that I like to focus on is efficiency. So what if we could plug leaks? What if we find people overpaid on tax or they overpaid on interest or they overpaid on insurance fees um, or they have duplicate coverages or investment fees that are non-performing or you know things like that? What if we plug those leaks? We can get more output with the same dollars that they started with, right? So more output. Or the bigger game is expanding our means. Mm -hmm. What if we could scale or impact more people or more deeply impact people with the same dollars because we either keep our money in motion or because we've invested in ourselves, and then we can produce more with the money that we make. So velocity is more about cash flow and accumulation is more about compounding. And most people feel that compounding is the way to go because that's what we've been sold. Yes. But compounding always works for the institution. It seldomly works for the individual. And I know this is her this is like heresy for some people, right? <laughs> yeah. This is like, this is like, Whole grains aren't good. What? Right, right. You know, this <laughs> is like, you know, it, it, it's it's this whole notion that this is just what everybody's doing, but it's not working, even if that's what everybody's doing. Right. And it's not what the institutions are doing. So we want to kind of look at what's really happening here in order to decipher this. And scarcity exacerbates the problem because when we're in scarcity, then we get into shrinking level thinking. We become more selfish and we don't create as much value. And it's dollars that follow value. So if you're in scarcity, the things I find is number one, spend time with people who are more abundant. Mm -hmm. So they can ask you questions you don't know how to ask of yourself. So they can uplift you and that you could learn from them. 
or serve people when you feel like you're in scarcity. Rather than wallowing in your dismay and your worry, why not instead find someone and deliver value to them? Because in that conversation, if you can find a way to serve someone, you're going to feel better if they appreciate you than if you just sit around and be like, I don't know what to do. And look, we're in a time right now where something like a virus just puts people in sheer panic, right? Just puts them in panic. It's crazy. And, and now their conversations become about that instead of about production. Their life becomes about what they're fearing they might lose versus what they could do to deliver value and create gain. Yeah. And so it's, it's because people operate most of the time from scarcity rather than abundance. And people in scarcity believe that scarcity is real. They just believe. Yeah. Like, like Thomas Malthus said, um, you know, that we were going to run out of food hundreds of years ago. Uh-huh. We haven't because of innovation, right? Right. Because things can grow. And as long as we do certain things right, we have a good ecosystem for it. So, or, I mean, it's just this belief that there's only so much to go around, but Abundance says, even if there's a finite amount of specific resources, we could be more resourceful. Human ingenuity, innovation, resourcefulness, efficiencies, you know, like uh, invention. Mm-hmm. And, and so abundance doesn't mean that we frolic through fields holding hands and levitate. It just means that we make choices that are governed by value creation instead of choices governed by scarcity. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. And there has to be a self-awareness there too, because I love the idea of you talking about productivity, because I know when I came from the traditional world of budgeting prior to Wealth Factory, the onboarding process for Wealth Factory was amazing, not to make it sound like a sales pitch here, but it's like, it was really extremely eye-opening for me going through how I was budgeting. It was traditional like mint.com, but there's so many categories and all that. Like, even if I just look at health, it's like, functional medicine doctor, nutritional supplements, groceries, all these things. I was like, where do I put these? Then you narrowed it down to these, the, the idea of productive and protective expenses. So now I'm categorizing things into just four categories. But the scarcity mindset, people don't even think about productive and protective. It becomes this thing of, like you said, most wealthy people don't look at purchases just based on price. They look at value and cost. Yep. So can you talk about that value-based spending? Yeah, so there's three measures of worth. And the first measure is where most people get stuck if they're in scarcity, which is what's the price, right? right? And so if they're just looking for a lower price, they might not consider the time it took to find a better price. And what is their time worth, right? Or the stress of that. So that's cost opportunity, right? Yeah, exactly. Opportunity cost, yeah. Opportunity cost. So price is what we pay, but cost is the economic impact, what you're talking about, the opportunity cost. There's something that could be low price and high cost. Yes. I just think of McDonald's as a good example. <laughs> Great example. You get low price value menu, high cost with whatever the hell they are putting it in those fries <laughs> and the pink sludge and whatever all that stuff is. Right. It's crazy right. how many McDonald's CEOs have had heart attacks too, by the way. I mean, you know, like, like yeah, that's low price, but it's high cost because you're going to pay for it in your health. Sure. And that's going to be in the hospital or lost energy or whatever it might be. So cost is the economic impact. I might have an account that costs twice as much, but they saved me four times more. It's actually a lower overall cost, even though the price is higher. Right. And if we only measure on price and don't consider cost, we can easily get duped because anyone can make something cheap. But what, is it going to be sustainable? Is it going to be valuable? Is it going to last? And I think this is what we can see in retail. There's a lot of people that go jump after something that's on sale for 50% that they didn't want in the first place because they're governed by price. Right. Cost is the economics. And then the third piece is value. Value is your own personal preference, feeling of satisfaction, feeling of joy, feeling of happiness, feeling of fulfillment. It's just what you want. 
And most people feel guilty for even wanting those things because of well-intentioned preachers, teachers, family, and friends telling them what they should like or not like, like they have any say in it. Value is perspective. So if you begin with value first, cost second, price third, that's financial freedom. That's that money is no longer the primary reason or excuse why you would do or not do something. It's only a consideration. Right. Most people, it's the only consideration. Right. Right. So, so I feel like the understanding the three measures of worth, I'm like, what's the price? What's the cost? What's the value? I'm willing to pay a lot more for certain things because the value is exponentially greater. Steve Jobs really understood this one thing more than anything else. He understood that if he hired amazing people, he could get a 99 to one return on them. Mm. Now he might pay them 25, you know, 250% more than other firms were paying employees of the same, you know, title, but he was getting a 99 to one return on who they were because he hired the best, but most yeah. people hire cheap and they get less. Right. 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 So this is one example. Well, I loved it too about it. It's subjective because it's, you're looking at it. You used a great example in budgeting sucks where you said, Hey, if, if a Rolex is worth more than $7,500 of value, if that's more valuable to you as an individual, anyone who tells you that you wasted money is simply wrong. And and that's it. It's different for every individual. Like a great example of this is like, I'll do coaching calls with people, people that are trying to free up time for fitness or whatever. And I'm like, they find out that they think I'm wasteful because they find out that I pay for grocery delivery and I refuse to to clean my own house or that I have an Airbnb and I have someone manage it for me and they take 15% off the top. But I run, I run multiple companies from my home. It the, the hour and a half it takes me to go out to the grocery store. I can be more productive in that time than the three ninety nine grocery delivery fee. Right. Totally. I mean, it's, it's opportunity cost, right? It's valuing your time. Yes. It's basically saying, Hey, what do you enjoy and what don't you enjoy? And what's going to like, here's the thing. This is critical. And I, this isn't in any of my books yet. This will be in my next book. Okay. But part of what prevents people from being wealthy is escapism. And escapism is when we either first sacrifice for someone else, right? Like they sacrifice themselves because when we sacrifice for others, it's an excuse for us not to be responsible for ourselves. Okay. So why aren't we further ahead? Well, I was raising kids. And because I was sacrificing for my kids, I couldn't do X, Y, and Z, right? Sure. Um, I sacrificed my health because I was starting a business, right? So it's, it's this excuse that people have where they're giving up something that's important because they're saying something else was urgent. And this is the crux of society. The next thing is, Another part of escapism is when we're confronted with something that we have to take real responsibility for, and we have to really value ourselves, it's easy to create false busyness. Mm-hmm. Like I'm busy because I've got to clean the house and mow the lawn and organize the garage. And I'm busy because this new TV series that I've been waiting for just came out. And I'm busy because, I mean, I could just go through the list, right? For me, well, I, I recognize one of my escapisms was I was listening to sports talk radio in the morning. I don't mm-hmm. even watch sports very often. So like, why am I listening? I'm just doing it because I was being lazy and I didn't want to deal with certain things. And so it's a way to tune out. So what did I do differently? I just confronted the things that were confronting me and I dealt with it Yeah. rather than delaying it. We delay so many things that become excuses and that prevent us from wealth. And they actually invite scarcity. So here's, here's another example. Anytime we're not truly ourselves, let's say you ask me a question. I'm like, I don't want to disappoint this one. I'm just going to, I'm just going to 
telling part of the story, right? Mm -hmm. So if I do that, I actually just created another actor in my life that never has to live that lie. Right. And the more actors I create, the more I'm a chameleon, the more exhausted I am trying to hold up these false pretenses because part of it is we just don't know what people are going to think about us. It, but what they have to understand, everybody understands we're all human beings and nobody loves someone that's perfect. Right. We love people when they're willing to express their imperfections and be okay with it because it gives confidence and hope to us. And so, so escapism is such a big reason why people don't get wealthy or why they don't do what you do, why they would complain about a $3.99 delivery fee or they would complain because if they're busy doing that, they have an excuse for why they didn't live up to their potential. Yeah. But if they go for their potential and don't live up to it, they might only have themselves to blame. But here's the deal. We're all going to live up to our potential. It's just how long it's going to take Right. in this life or the next. Right. So I'm like, might as well do it now. And if you just confront these situations, you might find yourself worthy of paying this. I mean, it might be because we heard a parent say, why would you waste your money doing that? Well, it might be a waste for them and not a waste for us. You know? Yeah. I hear it so many times because I have a lot of moms in my audience and then I'll, I'll bring that up to them. Hey, if you're short on time, like hire a house cleaner or grocery delivery. And the very first thing they say to me more often than not is they say, oh my God, my mother would kill me. Like, cause their mother will look at them as a failure because they don't clean their own house. And this goes back to this epigenetic stuff, man. Yeah. Like we got to push this stuff out. Look, man, my wife, uh, when we had our, our second kid, so now we have two kids, she's starting to like not sleep enough. She's starting to get really tired. She would take him to the store and it's like 10 times more work. Like I took him once just myself to see what she's going through. One's hiding in the clothes rack. I can't <laughs> find where the hell they are. The other one's crying in the, in the, in the stroller. I'm like, Oh my God. So I tried to tell her, why don't you hire some help? She's like, I couldn't do that. I like, I'm a mom. Yeah. I'm like, cool. I'm like, I get maybe my mom, uh, maybe you should talk to my mom. My mom worked and I feel like I turned out pretty well. And uh, your mom worked and you turned out pretty well. I'm like, so I don't know where you're getting this. So what I decided to do was go to my wealthiest friends that the women weren't necessarily working, but they still had a nanny. Sure. Right. Sure. Even if it was part time, because I had her hear it from them. Yeah. And by hearing it from them, we hired this girl, Amber, which I could only hope to be half the parent that she was the nanny, dude. She was so <laughs> focused on our kids and adored our kids. The day she left, to go back to Minneapolis, she was in her car bawling and my wife's in the house bawling because yeah. we were so connected and she was so great. And you know what it gave? It gave my wife freedom to go do some things for herself because this was the lesson for her. I said, hey, quantity doesn't equal quality. And if you're exhausted and bitter, you don't wanna be around the kids. Yeah. You wanna actually go take a break, you know, renew and rejuvenate because the bottom line is kids are a lot of work. Under four, they're romance and sleep terrorists. I don't see it as a option. <laughs> we have the cash. Let's do it. Yeah. But some people would never invest in themselves that way because someone else would see them. But guess what? Epigenetic work and recontextualize. Have people understand where you're coming from and just work on your side of the equation. The more we try to let other people dictate what we do in life, we have to recognize one thing. When someone's in scarcity, they're thinking irrationally. And if we get, if we succumb to that scarcity, we're now a part of it. Yeah. So like yeah. if someone's like, oh, my mom will kill me. I'm like, dude, your mom's in scarcity about that. Get over it. Exactly. Get over it. Who Like they're going to love you anyway. Yeah. We don't have yeah. to earn. Like my message to my kids is you don't have to earn my love. You don't have to earn my love. You have it. Right. I could be disappointed. I could be mad. I could be sad about your choices, but I will unconditionally love you. And I believe in you.
Like that's the whole message, you know? That's your only job, man. It's like, the, you're, you're so right. The wealthiest dude I know, one of my best friends in the world, lives in a different country and I go and stay with him a couple times a year and we have a great time. So he's got the big giant house. He has a live-in au pair. He has like a CEO that manages his entire uh, household. And, yeah. yeah, the whole household and everything. And then he has a live-in au pair that takes care of these two kids. And even me at first, because of my program, I was like, well, that's interesting. The kids are kind of with this au pair all day. And then it's like family dinner time. And we're all eating dinner together. The au pair, the kids love this au pair. They still love their parents to death. She's not replacing the parents. It's like this beautiful, like communal thing that I had never been exposed to. I was like, this is gorgeous. Like, I love this. You know what I mean? I remember when I got a Bentley, my brother-in-law said, don't you feel guilty? about what? He goes, don't you? And like, this is, he's a pretty enlightened cat. Like, he just was being really open with me. He's like, don't you feel like you give that money to charity instead? I said, hey. So let me be really clear about this. It's not an either or. Mm-hmm. It's not an either or. Right. I, I bought this and, you know, I enjoy driving. I let my employees drive it for date night. Like it's a oh, daily nice. driver for me. Like yeah. it's kind of fun. I'm like, and I still have 1% of all my revenue that goes towards two social missions that are really important to me to pay it forward. Yeah. And I give my time of those two. So it didn't preclude that. Right. It didn't. It, it wasn't a... If I do this, I can't do that. That's scarcity. Scarcity has this belief there's dilemmas, that there's lose-lose or win-lose scenarios. And look, man, the world believes in this big time. Mm-hmm. Part of it's because I think we're addicted to sports as a, as a country and as a, a world. And in sports, it's winner versus loser. It's us yep. versus them. But dude, you're into music. Music is not a winner-loser game. Everyone can benefit from music. It's abundant. Absolutely. I could listen to the song. You can, we could both love the song. I can learn to play the song. Like music is so abundant, right? Yeah. And, and people believe that life is a competition. Take what's mine. Get what's mine. Take and get are selfish. They're scarcity. And the real winners in the, in the world are the ones that are giving. Mm-hmm. They're, they're creating value. And there's so much to be had with that because velocity means we just keep circulating those dollars because we've exchanged goods, services, and we get wealthier. And when people can understand that life is not a zero-sum game, that business, yes, there are some businesses that are all about competition, but that businesses that are about collaboration can go a lot further and help a lot more people. Yeah, absolutely. It's not a zero-sum game. And it's like, I love the idea of you, you saying you can do both. Like my dad told me my dad's a self-made guy. My whole community knows this because he's active in my company. But um, he just built his dream house on a lake and it's extravagant. The thing is insane. And he also, when he sold his company in 2016, 10% of that was automatically put into a charitable trust and he just funds 501c3s wherever he sees fit. Dude has given a ridiculous amount of money to charities and he bought his dream lake house. You can do both. Yeah. And the thing is, it's just like the, the value. It's different for both people. So I want to help people. There's two phrases you use, and I want to make sure I have them both correct as well. Can you talk about the idea of financial independence versus financial freedom? Those are yeah. two different things, right? Yes. Two different things. And let me just let me just say this about what you mentioned with your dad. And I'll answer financial independence, financial freedom. Okay. If we define value, right? If we define value as a, as a measure of the three measures of worth, or we just look at value as like, what is it? And money is just evidence of value. What if money is just evidence of value? Sure. Like sure. value is an amazing thing. If money's merely evidence of value 95% of the time, then people with money have created value. Now, because of cronyism, because of politics, 
because of um, you know abusive capitalism, then we look at the exception to the rule and then say, I don't want money to ruin me. Of course. I don't want, I want to be a good person and therefore I don't want to be rich. And so that kind of notion comes up, but I'm like, wait, wait, wait. When I see someone wealthy, the benefit of the doubt is they've impacted the world in a very positive way. Now, that 5% of people that are doing illegal, deceptive, coercive, you know, abuse, like all those things they're taking, like I get they exist, but they're not the rule. The news makes <laughs> us believe that they are. Yeah. More people are employed by, by small businesses than by major corporations. When we hear of most wrongdoing, it's overwhelmingly major corporations. Not that it's Absolutely. immune with small companies, but it's overwhelming. And so, so I think that, I think that we have to really recognize that money is stored value. And that if you've created value, I get that you could marry into it. I get that you could get win the lottery. It's usually fleeting or that you might be part of the lucky sperm club and inherit it. But ultimately, mm -hmm. it means that someone did something of a significant and substantial value. If you look at the world from that lens, then you can let go of jealousy, envy, frustration, and instead go, well, what could I learn? Yeah. What, could, what did they do? And you can see them in a different place. Now, financial independence okay. is when we have enough cash flow to cover our basic expenses. That cash flow should come from one of two sources or both. Assets that produce cash flow or entrepreneurial income, which is income that comes in if we don't open a computer or show up to an office, right? It's just income that comes in because infrastructure that we built. When that covers our basic expenses, we're financially independent. Financial freedom goes back to that state of mind where money is no longer the primary reason or excuse why we would do or not do anything. So financial freedom is a state of being, financial independence is a state of having because of our assets. So they're both in just extraordinarily valuable, but people can become financially uh, free like that. Now, maybe it's not that easy, but they can make the choice. Sure. And have a paradigm shift. Whereas financial independence requires, you know, a little bit more cooperation and intention and action to create specific cash flow from assets. Sure, sure. This was huge for me in the onboarding process of Wealth Factory because we went through all of my expenses, including like lifestyle expenses, productive and protective expenses, things that I want to do to keep up with my current lifestyle. And I was blown away by this, man. And the crazy thing is a lot of my people that have seen my social media and everything, it's like, I mean, I, I went to eight different countries just in 2019. I lived in Thailand. Like I have a functional medicine doctor who's ridiculously expensive. I see a therapist every week. I train martial arts, like constant experiences and investment in myself. And then I go through these numbers with Tim from Wealth Factory and I'm looking and he was like, dude, for you to live the exact lifestyle you're living, like organic, grass-fed, everything, groceries, everything, all my favorite things, $5,300 a month. It literally blew my mind. I was like, wait a minute, are you serious? Like, cause my cost of living is crazy low. I've made some good investments along the way. And he was just like, yeah, that's it. Now in my head, I had this thing of like, I have to be rich. I must be rich so I can live the lifestyle I want. The next thing I know, I'm taking coaching calls with people for nutrition, fitness, whatever. And they're talking about how their finances are such a big stressor. They don't want to buy these nutritional supplements or whatever. And then we get really candid and it blows their mind that I, they find out I make far less money than they do. And it's just complete mind blown for them. But the difference is I have 10x the freedom that they have. So it's two different things. So that's what I, when I hear that word freedom, but I was just blown away by how little it is. And that goes back to self-awareness. All my excuses, I must be rich, went out the window. Like 5,300 bucks a month, I can do that, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty awesome share. And if you just like, yeah, I mean, I think that 
the world has us stuck in activity and consumption. If I just work harder, I can buy more of the things that I want. And then people buy things they don't even want. <laughs> then they have to be more active to pay for those because it creates some level of debt. And ultimately, it's because a lot of people haven't sat down and said what it's important to them. Yeah. What do they want? And when I ask that to a lot of people, they go, I want to get out of debt. I'm like, that's not really a want. That's like, okay, you want to, but what got you there in the first place? And if you, if money weren't a concern, what would you do with your life? And a lot of people haven't ever answered that question. And until they answer that question, you know, like, I think that people just don't feel worthy of spending that money on themselves. Yeah. Like you feel worthy to spend that money on yourself. Absolutely. Like we've, I've dealt with this with my wife, you know, like, like now she had this, this awesome guy, uh, Kyle that does, he, he's on Skype and he trains her, tells her what to do in the gym. But then they also do like EFT, emotional freedom technique. And they talk about, you know, overall her, like she takes pictures of her food, but you know, it's not too, it's not too constraining, but it's like, that's been a phenomenal thing for her, but she wouldn't spend money even on a gym pass before. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I don't even care. Like, I let, whatever it is. She's like, oh, Pilates is expensive. I'm like, what do you, like, for us? What? But <laughs> exactly. but it's that, like, worthiness. Like, could, you know, are you willing to invest in yourself? Yeah. Dude, it's so hard for me to get people to understand the concept that you teach of, like, make yourself the number one investment. I shared this today in the Clovis Academy, my private Facebook group, because there was a story of a girl, 25-year-old girl who makes 150 grand a year on Fiverr, doing 5 to $15 gigs on Fiverr. So I'm talking to people, and it becomes this thing of, like, somehow $250,000 of student loan debt is like perfectly acceptable in our society. But then I'll show somebody like, Hey, you can take this Facebook ads masterclass for $97. And it's like on a click funnels page. And they're like, Oh, I, I can't spend money on that. I'm like, do you understand how much better this will do for you in a marketplace? Understanding Facebook ads versus like your philosophy degree or whatever you got for 200 K. Dude, I, when I went to, when I went to college, one, how ridiculous are general education classes? Insane. It's like, let's just waste your time. <laughs> yes. Stuff that will be meaningless in your life. But I took a nutrition class, right? Mm-hmm. So like, I was, I was in college. I, I wouldn't say my nutrition was dialed in. I talked to my cousin who was super buff and was a running back. He's like, I eat pasta and tuna fish sandwiches. I was like, All right. <laughs> yeah. you know? So I was just like filling myself full of mercury and, and carbs. But uh but, you know, I was working out pretty hard. But then I go stay, take some creatine. I start bulking up. And then I go to that nutrition class. She goes, creatine does nothing. I'm like, well, later on, I'm like, at least make sure you retain water at a minimum. It does something, you know. Sure. And then she just espoused the food pyramid like it was the only answer to everything. I'm like, and I'm paying a huge amount of money. And, you know, where I could actually now pay for a nutritionist, I could pay for you know, all sorts of advice for a lot less money, a lot less time and a lot more result. But we've, yeah. but somehow this paper degree, you know? Right, it, that's it. It's kind of like Napoleon Bonaparte saying, hey, my life changed when I found out people would die for a blue ribbon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I kind of feel like that with a, with a college degree, you know? Yeah. Like, okay, maybe it's right for some, but not for everyone, hopefully not for most. And it, it's, I have a, a video coming on YouTube where I just say, this whole, you know, work hard, get good grades, go to college, get a good job. You'll end up with a pension. I'm like, you're not going to end up with that. And people are now finally believing it, but they're believing it with $250,000 of student loan debt. Yeah. Oh, it's brutal, man. And that, it's it's crazy. I went through it being a musician. My bachelor's degree is in songwriting, right? I'm out here. I invented these products and I do coaching and all this stuff. But I, at the time I had probably four or five years of 
biochemistry study under my belt from guys like Rob. Rob's like, read this textbook. Like nobody knows biochem like Rob. The dude is brilliant. So I'm like, I'm learning from him, same textbooks, everything. But I knew people wouldn't listen to me. So I went back to school three times to get three different credentials. And while going through the programs, explained to people how wrong all of this information was and why you're, you're blindly trusting credentials because you don't want to trust a random musician from Nashville who studied biochemistry books by himself in his house. It's just like the, the value is ridiculously different because I didn't spend the 200 grand. Somehow I don't have the same knowledge. It's, it's staggering. Yeah. You know? And it's funny because I think most of that is people, it's their own self limitations and self limiting beliefs when they don't have a degree of, of some sort. Right. I totally agree, man. It's funny when people are like, well, do you live in New York city? I'm like, no, nah, man, I would, I probably think differently. Yeah. Like if I had to look at this from a different perspective, like, what's your degree? And I'm like finance, but it did, you know, the thing that helped me was one professor, not my degree. Yeah. You know, the thing that helped me was 26 straight months flying somewhere with a little red memo pad, asking questions and writing questions. And uh, you know, it's like there, there's, there's real world application to that. But I think your message of you got to be willing to invest in yourself, like, yeah, and, and you're worthy of it. And I think it's just easier to gamble on someone or something else. And when it doesn't work out, be able to place blame. It's harder to take responsibility. Yeah. You know, I'm in the money world. I've lost money in real estate before. Sure. I've made money, but I've lost money. Sure. I've lost sure. money in oil and gas. I've made and lost money on IPOs. I had a hard money lending fund that didn't do very well. Like I did all these things because it was outside of my expertise, but it's what everybody was doing. And I was like, I'm going to just be an investor. And I did things that I hated and didn't enjoy because the early people I studied were all about just do this, that, and the other. And you know what? I was slopping my money around thinking I was really intelligent because for the first eight years, it all worked out because of timing, not because of skill. And so I'm even more passionate about money and finance after going through those experiences, sure. admitting sure. what I did was limited. And, you know, I feel like Killing Sacred Cows was my first book because it was a confessional. Hey, man, here's the nine mistakes that kick my ass. I want to teach everyone else not to make them, you know? Yeah. And wisdom through experience is, is always so much more valuable. So the tricky part I see, like, I want to talk about debt because that's the number one thing that I got. The number one theme of all these questions is getting out of debt. And the scary thing there is like wisdom through experience is huge. Like my very first business deal with Clovis, I lost multiple six figures. I got murdered. I don't talk about that a lot, but just because it was there was a lawsuit and all this craziness, right? It was awful but I touched a very hot stove that I'll never touch again, you know, the wisdom through experience. But that's the other thing I find is that people feel like they're so far gone. They've been burned by college. They've been burned by whatever bad credit card debt. So these people that are in debt have this built-in excuse of like, yeah, Justin, yeah, Garrett, you guys can do this, but I'm still over here stuck in this debt. Now your methods have been staggering to me in terms of how quickly you get people out of debt. So if someone is suffering from that debt and that's a big obstacle for them, where do you start with them? Well, it's my three R's. Restructure, reallocate, and renegotiate. Okay. So what a lot of people do is they just kind of take a haphazard shotgun approach. Like, ah, this bill's due. I've got a little extra money on this. I'll just pay extra to this loan. Oh, hey, this, <laughs> this time this one came up. I didn't have extra. I pay the minimum. And so they just kind of, based upon their circumstance, pay towards things. The better way to do it is first take your cash flow index, which is take your loan balance and divide it by the minimum required monthly payment. So just what's being required. Loan balance divided by minimum monthly payment, it spits out a number. If that number is less than 50, you have a cash hog on your hands. You don't have a lot of money that you owe to the institution, but you have a really high payment in relationship to that balance. So loan balance divided by minimum monthly payment gives you your cash flow index. If it's over 100, you have a pretty efficient loan. I wouldn't rush to pay that off 
I'd make sure to build up your own cash and then you can pay it off when you have enough cash to pay it off. So you keep control of your money. But the restructure part is a lot of people could refinance loans and get better terms or combine loans for overall lower interest rate. So if you have a paid off car, if you were to refinance that car, you can get a 1.9, 2.9% interest rate, pay off a high interest rate credit card. And guess what? Your car loan improves your credit score. Your credit card probably hurts your credit score. So all of a sudden right. you boost your credit score, you can now go negotiate better interest rates with your other lenders. So find the cash flow index, pay the minimum to every single loan other than the loan with the lowest cash flow index, pay extra to that one, restructure loans so you can improve your cash flow index. Maybe you have equity in your home, you refinance it, you pull in a credit card, you pull in a business loan, make sure you've got an automated infrastructure. This is kind of a, a big sure. point to capture that so it doesn't just get spent. But now you're in a tax deductible situation versus non-tax deductible, lower interest rate situation versus higher interest rate. And then the renegotiation is if you have credit cards, a lot of the credit card companies will lower your interest rate if you know what to say when you call them. Mm -hmm. So there's four C's that are really important when it comes to you know, having purchasing power and, and restructuring your negotiation. First is good credit. Get your credit above 760. And if it's above 760, you're gonna have better options. Now to do that, you might have to limit the number of inquiries of letting people look at your credit. You have to make sure you're paying on time. You might have to have an installment loan like a car loan to boost it up. You might have to increase your limits available to you on your credit card so that there's nothing over 20 or 30% of utilization. You might have to make sure there's no errors on your credit report. There's some basic things that you could do that could really boost that score. Number two, sure. have good cash flow reporting. Like institutions, if, if, if everything's disorganized, they're not gonna want to you know, help you out and give you a loan. When you come very organized and when you speak the language of the institution, you know how to present yourself. Then you look at collateral, like a car versus a credit card, that collateral can lower your interest rate. Like a home versus a business line of credit, you can get a lower interest rate. Sure. Then the right connections. There's just certain institutions that lend better to certain type of people than others. So it's important to build those relationships. So, so restructure the loan. You know, uh, you can reallocate is the other R, which is if let's just say you have like cash value and in insurance, or you have a 401k, or you have a certificate of deposit that's not earning much. Anytime you're earning a lower interest rate than you're paying, why not use that cash, pay off the loan? It's going to improve your cash flow. It's going to get you a better immediate guaranteed return by saving that interest. And then again, go back to your lowest cash flow index and only pay extra to that loan. So you might pay off a loan. You might restructure a loan. You might get a better interest rate on a loan. And then you only pay extra to one loan at a time. And this makes a massive difference in the time it takes to pay off loans. Yeah. Cash flow index was huge for me. And, and I just uh, paid off my last actual loan personally, besides my mortgage. Um, I went through this with Tim at Wealth Factory and it, my, my cash flow index on my car was like 47. And he's like, dude, he runs the numbers for me. He's like, if you pay this off, I had the cash on hand to pay it off. He said, if you pay this off, everyone's thinking about investing. You pay this off, you get a 25% return on your money. I was like, oh, <laughs> I didn't even realize that. You know, So I just went ahead and paid it off, just got the title in the mail, which is which is awesome. But so that brings me to like, in terms of the, um, uh, an efficient loan, that term you said of an efficient loan, because so a lot of people, I hear this term thrown around constantly. And especially from the ultra conservative, like the Dave Ramsey world and everything, it's this idea of debt free besides my mortgage. So people get there and that's beautiful. That's where I'm at right now. But my mortgage is an asset because it's an Airbnb. So that's a little bit different, but people get to this place, which is a beautiful place. But then everyone, I see them zapping all of their cash flow. 
They go, now I'm going to pay off my house as quickly as possible. And I'm going to be completely debt free. And they scrimp and save and they're misers and they suffer till their house is paid off. Can you explain why this isn't necessarily the best approach from a, from a cash flow standpoint? Well, there's multiple issues what we're facing here. The first is most mortgages are amortized, right? So you could pay extra next month and your payment still stays the same. It just shortens the term of your loan. What if that, what if that's a 30 year loan? You might pay extra and now there's, you save two years. That's still 28 years away that you've tied your money up in what I call equity gel. Yes. Equity gel is money inside of your house that you can't get access to. And by the way, you can only access that money by refinancing, getting a line of credit, or selling the home. Now, banks never wanna work with you if you're in a cash crunch. So let's say that you've got 50% of the value of your home in equity, and now you hit a cash flow crunch and you're like, I need to get that equity. The bank's gonna say, I don't think so. Your financials don't look good. You're not earning the kind of money we wanna, and then why not, for, why not have them for, they wanna foreclose. There's equity in that thing. Yeah. They're like, cool. Right. But my problem is people that try to pay off their mortgage do it at the expense of investing in themselves. Exactly. They might not take supplements. They might not have a trainer. They might not, you know, be investing and everything's going towards that. So it's like this weight on their shoulders that they're trying to get through. And they're so tunnel vision that they're missing out on life along the way. Now, the bigger problem, the bigger problem is those people that actually pay it off. They're not teachable anymore. Mm. They think they've figured it all out. Yeah. Just like the doctor that's an amazing surgeon and knows nothing about nutrition that's giving nutrition advice. 100%, man. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I see that too. And the, uh, there's a lot of young kids falling into this. I actually, I, I researched it quite a bit for a while before I found Wealth Factory. Uh, that fire, financial independence, retire early. And it's like, these people just like for all of their 20s are like living with eight roommates and living on rice and beans so they can retire early. And I'm like, and then what? Yeah. Like you don't even know what you like. The problems we're facing in the world don't, uh, we don't get value if someone retires, they get taken out of service. We want yeah. people to stay and help, right? I get being a minimalist, that's fine. Being a minimalist sure. is fine. But sacrificing is absolutely not. Sacrificing, like my partners died at age 35. What if they lived a life of sacrifice? Mm. Well, one of them, his, his widow told me, she goes, I feel like we lived a lifetime in the last 18 months. Yeah. They'd been on trips. They had done night diving in Hawaii. They had hired a photographer to get pictures on the beach. They had gone to South Carolina and stay, you know, like they just did all these things. Yeah. And, and I was in my twenties, like, oh, I could always do that later. Damn. What if I was the one on that plane? Right, right. In, in my 20s, man, like I had a great career. I did reality TV, a whole, whole bunch of fun stuff, right? For 10 years straight, I played 300 shows a year, literally. I was on stage all the time. And I looked at it finally. Now, it's part of the reason I started a, an e-commerce company is I was like, this is no way to live. Every weekend, every holiday, yeah, I'm on stage watching everyone else have fun. I'm on stage. That's kind of cool. But you're burnt out after 10 years. Then I started Clovis and I quit playing bar gigs. And for the next year, it was, I traveled to eight different countries. I lived in Chiang Mai, Thailand. I joined Baby Bathwater and I went to these islands and this amazing stuff. And I'm like, I feel like I lived 10 years in one year just because I had more freedom of my time. Freedom of time and quality of life at the forefront. So yeah, man, I mean, like all this money thing, the first thing I would say is we don't have to know everything that we think we need to know about money. We need to know mm -hmm. how it works and it, and conceptually about it. Like. I would bet 
that people think I know 10 times more than I do when it comes to numbers. Right. <laughs> but I probably know 10 times more than they even can consider when it comes to philosophy. Yeah. I understand the concept of money. So I know the questions to ask. Right. I know how it applies, right? But I can't look at a tax form and really know what's going on there. But I do know the tax concepts, right? Right. So, so that's, I think, helpful to not get intimidated by money, you know, and, and know what to actually pay attention to and what not to pay attention to. And yeah, man, this mortgage thing, I put a video on YouTube that said paying off your mortgage destroys your finances and people lost their shit about that. And I'm like, look, yeah. I, I actually don't believe it destroys your finances. I believe you put yourself at risk if you're just paying extra to the bank sure. versus sure. saving that money on the side. And then people are like, well, I'm never going to do better saving money on the side than the interest I save paying down my mortgage. I'm like, really? Because my mortgage right here in the house I'm sitting in, 4%. The place I've been putting the money has been earning 5.32%. And it's secure and it's locked in once it's earned. And so I'm actually going to pay off my home faster. If I, Well, actually, I could pay it off tomorrow if I want. I have the money to pay it off. I'm not going to. Yeah. Because I'm not staying here forever. I'm just staying here until my kids graduate high school. And then I'll probably, my wife and I think we'll move. Right? Yeah. So why would we pay that off, tie up that capital when I'm earning more than it's costing me? A hundred percent. Yeah. And I, I get it. Like, I think that sometimes Dave Ramsey's really pandering to people that are reckless with their cash. Sure. But man... I'm not going to do that. I'm going to talk about how it really works. And if they need to go to a psychiatrist, then they go to a psychiatrist. We can't, we can't create the lowest common denominator for everyone in money. Of course. Go, everyone should pay off their mortgage. Really? So we are no longer responsible human beings at all. We're just going <laughs> to assume the worst. Instead of look at the economics behind our choices and decisions, I'm not willing to succumb to that. I'm not willing to say, this is just how it is. Let's just tell people, think, what's the easiest, most thoughtless thing that you could do that will harm the least number of people, even though it's harming everyone, because it's like being like, ah, we're just going to accept obesity. Yeah, obesity. Yeah, it's, yeah. Just, it's how it is now. No, I don't, I don't accept that. I don't accept that. No, I totally agree, man. And it's crazy, too, because the finance thing, I look at the Dave Ramsey's of the world. I see so many people with like horrific credit card debt, and I compare it to nutrition. I go, okay, if you're in a really bad spot... Dave Ramsey's advice is probably going to help you get better. So if I have a client that's 300 pounds and they want to be 150 pounds, I'll give them the clear path to get there. If they hit 150 pounds and they say, now I want to gain 20 pounds of muscle, they need to forget everything I just taught them about how to lose 150 pounds because that plan is going to work directly against them building 20 pounds of muscle the same way the Ramsey approach will work directly against getting rich. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, it, he's the best at getting a train wreck on track exactly mind you it's a very slow track <laughs> <You know? laughs> yes yes um and it still comes with the shackles of scarcity mm. it still comes with the shackles of pinching cutting reducing eliminating because i mean maybe he's changed his mind i read his books a decade ago or longer right and a lot of that was like you know i want to adopt but i might have to borrow somebody to do it. he's like then don't adopt you're not ready i'm like whoa 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 that's a pretty yeah crossing the line of like a human life and that they might have to borrow a little bit. I'm like, that's, and, and then another person wrote into one of his books and was like, hey, my uh, daughter's been following your advice so much, but now she won't spend any money on anything at all. And you know, it's like, yeah, when you take yeah. it to that conclusion. So it really always has to be about investing in yourself, enjoying life along the way, but being responsible enough to pay yourself first 
and then just live off whatever's left over. Sure. No reason to budget if you don't go out of bounds. You only have to budget if you go out of bounds. Yeah, absolutely. And it, something quick I want to touch on that was great in budgeting sucks because um, you ran some numbers there about getting out of debt and everything. But this seems like really low hanging fruit. And it goes to the concept of one of your sacred cows, which is 401ks. So I've seen this happen with clients where I am no Garrett Gunderson. And I'm like, hey, have you ever looked at it like this? And they're just like, oh my God, no. But let's say you have someone, and this is very easy to, to, to see happen in America, happens all the time. But you said this in Budgeting Sucks. You said, when you have loans and investments, you may be earning less interest from your investments than you're paying on your loans. So for listeners, it's easy to imagine somebody who might have $50,000 in a 401k, let's say it's returning three to 6%, and then they might have $50,000 in credit card debt that they're paying 16 to 24% APR, and the answer is staring them in the face in this sacred cow of the 401k that they refuse to touch. So am I right about that? Is that, do I have that correct? Yeah, and yet they just don't think about it. They just go, yeah, well, I just fund my 401k. You can't touch that. That's accumulation. Like, come on, man. You're losing money with every deposit you make in there. There's people with 17%, 22% credit cards. Yeah. And they're still funding the 401k. Like, right. Your 401k is not making that. Not even close. And one of the things that will blow people's minds, I mean, if I pulled up software, is like a lot of people are like, yeah, but I'm getting matched. That's free money. I'm like, well, is it free money? Because there's strings attached. Usually have to work a place for a certain amount of time. It's not always immediately immediately vested. Two, it's depending upon the underlying returns and you don't have losses on the market once the money goes in. Three, it's not fueling it at 100% because they're only matching new dollars going in, not the existing funds that are already in there. So I did a lot of analysis on that back in the Feeling Sacred Cows days, and it's not as good as people think. So no. um, yeah. It's not even close, man. And that's your work sent me down such a rabbit hole where it's like, I was listening to you. Um, I believe we have a mutual friend in Ryan Daniel Moran. I was listening yeah. to a lot of his stuff. I've spoken at capitalism.com and, and yeah, yeah, that's killer, man. And he actually sent me the book heads. I win tails. You lose by Patrick Donahoe. Yeah. Patrick Donahoe's a great guy. He's he, he lives close to here. I actually, uh, made him throw up when he came and worked out with me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> So you are, you're the king badass of the financial. Uh, the problem is, uh, you know, he, he did CrossFit before I ever did, but uh, I, I have an air assault bike. And, the, and if you get 30 calories in 60 seconds, you get a t-shirt for my gym. And he did do it. And then he went and threw up afterwards. <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, no, man, I loved his book. And then I read another one that was like, it wasn't as good. Like your books were way more entertaining. Patrick's book was great, but there's a book called The Bank on Yourself program I'm sure you're familiar with. Yeah, Pamela Yellen. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was really cool too. And it just kind of blew my mind. But I got into this um this concept of of cash flow banking, which I'm now involved in and super thrilled. I pulled the the trigger with Dale Clark and Mass Mutual. And like, nice. dude, if I had known about this in my 20s when I was like killing it in the music industry, I'd probably have 10 of these things. <laughs> but here's here's a, a random thing I want to talk about. This is very personal for me. And I know that you're gonna be like, oh okay, I totally get it. In the world of nutrition, People will change this like high fat, low carb diet and their entire family tells them that they're going to die of a heart attack. And this is terrible for them. See, strongly held false beliefs again. So I was recently in Mexico with my dad and my brother, like two days before I had signed the paperwork for Mass Mutual at Dale. I'm like all excited. Didn't talk about it. Didn't tell anybody about it. Nothing. Now, randomly in Mexico, we're talking business and finance. And my brother says these words. He goes, 
Yeah, man, that's like someone telling you to buy a whole life insurance policy, which is the worst financial advice you could ever give someone. Now, the kicker is my brother has two degrees. He has a degree in finance and economics, and he's a lawyer. And he's basically a genius, right? Yeah. And he says this, and now my newly held belief, I'm like, oh no, like, did I do something terrible here? But it's just, it's like you said, he was taught what he was taught in school. It doesn't make it right. Right. But where does this stigma come from for cash flow banking? Well, here's first off, 90% of the policies are designed terribly with companies that aren't really suited for it. So it might take four or five years before you see cash. Right, right. So because if they're designed with commission in mind versus really what's best for you, um, you know, then that's, that's part of the problem. So, so they deserve that rap because like in my book, what would the Rockefellers do? I say, well, Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman rail against cash value insurance. Yes. And I go, well, here's where they're right. When it's designed this way, it does take forever and it's not, it's going to underperform. Here's where they're wrong. They're only looking at expense. They think of it as an expense and they want to lower expenses to lower the amount of money required in the budget. So they're not looking at it from the benefit standpoint. Sure. So it really is super popular with the highly affluent from an estate planning standpoint. Um, it's especially with private placement life insurance. But when we look at whole life, when I first learned about it, someone said it's a hole you throw your money into. Yeah. Showed yeah. me some of the old antiquated policies and the way they were designed. And I'm like, yeah, these are no good. But when they're designed properly, then we treat it like a bank treats their reserves. A bank puts a portion of their reserves into cash value insurance. Yeah. Because yeah. it has a higher return than their than their reserve rate. It has more protection. It has more tax benefit. So we it, it's it's simply because so many people have not designed it properly that it gets that 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 kind of bad rap that it deserved. Yeah, totally. And it's interesting. So I'm a big believer in, in the universe and stuff. I kind of get the feeling you are too. But um, it was I had read uh, Killing Sacred Cows was first for me. Then what would the Rockefellers do? And then I had to wait till Budgeting Sucks was released to read another one. But like after what was would the Rockefellers do, I would go down this rabbit hole and I end up finding, you know, Ryan sends me heads I win, tails you lose. I read Emily's book, the Bank on Yourself program. Then I'm listening to Ryan's podcast. All these people like you, Dale Clark, Ryan, Patrick, Emily, the author of the Bank on Yourself. I think you said her name's Emily. But like, I heard all these people say the same thing of like, oh, yes, the core foundation of my finance, my finances is overfunded whole life insurance. And I'm like, whoa, how how have I never heard of this thing prior to now and this crazy stigma thing? So, I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled to have it now. I don't know if you want to touch on. I know that's like a big lengthy topic, but if you want to hit just bullet points of of cash flow banking, it's pretty unbelievable. I'm sold on it. Yeah, cashflowbanking.com is the site that uh, I endorse for it. Um, it really comes down to like overfunded whole life policies. The reason whole life, a lot of people are using indexed universal life. That's not cash flow banking because it has too many levers and, and risks that could face in the future. Whole life has guaranteed premium, guaranteed cash value, you know, guaranteed minimum interest rate and guaranteed death benefit. When you put more money into it, it goes straight to the cash value. You can push the death benefit up. That's known as paid up additions. Mm -hmm. So it takes, a, there's a capitalization period. Your first year, you're not going to have what you put into it. You might have 50, 60, 70% of what you put in after the first year. The second year, it gets a lot closer. Third year, by the fifth year, somewhere between three and five, you should be at break even. And then from there, you're just going to wall up your savings account because your savings account is going to earn 2% taxable. You know, my policies have been over 5% tax deferred but I can access that money tax-free. I don't have to wait till 59 and a half. 
It, it's protected from financial predators and bankruptcy and liability because of the way it's designed. I don't have to buy term insurance because I have a death benefit that's attached. I'm dealing with, you know, uh, Mass Mutual is a trillion dollar company. The one that you mentioned you had a policy with, yep. you know, uh, they're, they're, they've got a pretty stable structure that's behind them in what they're doing here. And they've been around for 150, 60 years or whatever. So they've survived recessions, depressions and wars. So like, I, I just, I like it as a place to be my midterm money. Now I can use that cash to buy things like investments or businesses, and I can put it back down in my, in, in my own terms. But right now I just got it sitting there. Why? Because it's getting more than 5% where everybody else is losing money in the stock market and it's, and it's secure. So once there's major deals and opportunities, I might use that cash to buy something, to buy a business, to buy an asset that's distressed and depressed. Yeah, so I, I haven't found a good way to explain this to people. It makes sense in my head because I've read all these books, but can you just detail, like I can borrow the money right now. I've had the policy for like 60 days. I can borrow the money from my whole life policy, yep. have that cash on hand, but it's still invested and still gaining interest. Yeah, so they use your money as collateral. It's in their earning. Then with that collateral, they'll lend you the insurance company's money at usually the same interest rate, maybe slightly different interest rate, right? You can then use that money, didn't take credit, it just took the collateral. It, your money still is an interest, you're paying interest on this money, you pay that money back. This money was always earning, so you never interrupt the compounding curve and you have flexibility. If you don't pay the loan back, they subtract it from your death benefit tax-free. It's it's just an insanely good deal. And I try to explain this. I do have some entrepreneurs. I know you kind of cater to entrepreneurs, really. Yep. And for entrepreneurs listening to this, it's like if you need equipment or something for your for your company, yeah. you can literally use your cash flow banking money and then have the company pay you back plus interest. And you can earn income from your company paying you back on a loan that you gave yourself. Like it's staggering. Right. <laughs> I wanted to touch on that in case people didn't know about it. But again, it's like, it's the peer pressure thing that it's the same with nutrition. People just come at you with these, these stigmas and all these different things. And the other thing is what, what was great about the bank on yourself book. Uh, Cause I think you, you were talking about some percentages there is she really hammers the point home, like chapter after chapter after chapter of the stock market returns over time versus these insurance policies and how astronomically close they are without that risk. That's so risk. look at coronavirus, it, like what it just did to the market. People got killed, you know? Yeah. yeah. So how do you, how do you feel about that? The, um, what just happened in the market? Like, do you see that? That's one of the questions we have from people too, is, is, do you see that as a real correction or just fear-based sell-off? Look, man, it's, we're at a very fragile place for a long time in the market. Yeah. So it's going to have exaggerated, um, movement when things like this happen. Sure. If it wasn't so overvalued, we wouldn't see that level of exaggeration, but it's overvalued. Yeah. So do people lose their shit on stuff like a, like a virus way too fast? Yeah. Like I was supposed to fly to Asia and go there for a month and take my son. I just moved the trip because I'm not worried about the coronavirus. I've got a good immune system. Um, I am worried about getting quarantined, however, you know, exactly. I totally so, agree. So I moved the trip to November. I mean, which means I think that this should pass overall. And, but yeah, man, we're just, we're just at a place where we've been going at such a high and hard rate for a long time. It doesn't make sense that we're going to have something like that, have a more quick impact. Yeah. And you know, I've been putting out videos that 2020 was the year of the recession. I didn't know it would be a coronavirus that would, you know, 
put that much of a damper, but I think it was going to happen whether we had an incident like the coronavirus, but you know, we have anything like all these trade agreement issues. There's just, there's just, it's, it's a fragile place, man. People are, we're valued in the market because people are putting money into it, not because it's actually worth that. It's worth that because people keep funding their retirement plans without question, not because 100%. it makes sense. Absolutely, man. It's crazy too. A, a little, uh, an amazing thing that happened because of Wealth Factory. I think it was sometime over the summer, maybe September or something, but I had a, a 401k traditional because I had an employee match. I had a Roth IRA. I had some money in stocks and everything. I went everything to cash. And I, I had a long talk with Tim about it. He's like, you know, based on your age, your income level, how your company's doing, now would be the time to do this and pay the penalties or whatever. I mean, could not be happier that I did that just based on what just happened and went into something like whole life, just a, a far more but again, the 401k is a sacred cow, man. People think this. Yeah. People think we've been funding 401ks since Adam and Eve when they're really like 40 years old. Yeah, and the, the real reason they came out is pretty fascinating because they came out more because pensions failures right? than because it was the right plan. Like you got to realize companies, like what happened was companies wanted to recruit high talent. They wanted to recruit the best. In order to recruit the best, they created pensions. Hey, come work for us. We want to get you here. We'll pay you after you know your working years are over. And this is a time where people aren't living at the age that they're living to now, especially in America. So what happens is people find out about these executives getting pensions. They're like, hey, that's unfair. I want pensions. So then we get the government. I mean, then all of a sudden, everybody's getting pensions, right? <laughs> right. And by the way, the reason why pensions got decimated is because they were reliant upon the stock market performing at 8.7%, I believe. And it didn't. Everybody says the average is 10. So that's why those things collapsed is because the stock market, they were running off numbers of the 90s, which were astronomical and a pipe dream today. So it was the stock market that really killed the pensions more than anything. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and it's, it's like, I, I read a book called The Fate of the States. Pensions collapsed certain towns in, in California because they had to pay the pensions before they could pay the police force. Wow. And, and it really created major problems where some of these places you could only report a crime if it was in progress. And I mean, it was crazy. So as we look at this, the, the movement was companies couldn't afford the pensions. So they started saying, well, match on a, on you, you pay, you know, rather than a defined benefit, like a pension where we're telling you what you get in the future, you can contribute and we'll, we'll match your contribution. It's less responsibility on the company, more on the individual. And the problem is it gives people false hope. They think, oh, cool, I'm going to fund this and I'm going to be able to retire. Right. 95% of people can't retire. So they're funding it. They're now involved in the market. They know little about the market, just like their companies knew little about the market. The market has continued to be overhyped and underperforming. And I've had people say, there's more 401k millionaires now than ever. I'm like, oh, really? Well, let's talk about that. Let's dissect that for just a minute. Mm -hmm. You said you need $5,300 to eat organic and live pretty healthy, right? Per month. Sure. Yep. If you had a million dollars right now, based upon the interest rates that are out there that people can earn in the in a 401k, guess what the average amount is being paid out of a 401k to retiree with a million bucks right now? I have no idea. Twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars a year. Whoa. So you're a millionaire on paper, but not living like one. No. These interest rates are so low. So I mean, that's less than half of what I would need. Yeah. So, so you have to now have $2 million. And by the way, that's what if in 10 years from now, you need to adjust that for inflation. Sure. It might be 3 million that you need. So, so it's a moving target. It's not performing. And like, 
yet people still believe in these plans, but they've failed people far too often. The first thing that those people on is has them, it lies to them and says, you're going to save tax. Well, how are you going to save tax? You put money into the plan pre-tax, but you have to pay taxes when you pull it out. What happens if taxes go up? The government's $23 trillion in debt right now. What if they raise taxes in the future? Mm-hmm. You know, we've had over a 50% highest tax rate since, on average since the inception of the taxes in 1913. So from 1944 all the way to 1981, the tax brackets were above 50%, right? So, yeah. so like right now we're historically low. The second thing is if it takes more money because of inflation to buy things in the future, you're going to pay more tax because sure. you got to have more money to buy the same things. So you're paying more in tax. So that's another issue. And here's my question. Do you want to live off less money in the future? <laughs> like that whole notion that people can live off 70% at retirement. Do you want less money in the future? That seems crazy. Yeah. So I don't think people are going to be in a lower tax bracket. So all we're doing is delaying our taxes, not saving our taxes in these plans. We're not getting cash flow along the way. We're investing in a market that has been underperforming for a decade now. Really, since 2000, the stock market's been a disappointment. So it's really been two decades. Yeah, We've had small run-ups, but overall, the returns are not close to what people think when they look at the actual returns. Right. And by the time we account for fees and inflation, it's been horrendous. And so I think that it's just something that people are, are buying into the 1990s in the year 2020. And it's going to disappoint them severely if they don't question it. And they'd be better off paying off their loans. They'd be better off putting some money in savings accounts so they have a little bit of liquidity and they'd be better off putting that money in themselves so they can earn more money and then go to cash flow banking to store their money and then invest in something that they understand beyond that. Yes. Where's the place you can invest? Like, you know how to invest in health and nutrition companies if that's where you really want to invest. Right. You probably don't know nearly as much about, I don't know, uh, maybe you do. I don't know shit about technology. Like, I'm not a teenager, so I can't keep up with all the technological trends. So I don't think I'm a good investor in that side. I'm good at investing in the infrastructure with technology in my businesses, not in predicting which technologies are going to blow up and do well. Yeah, you're not going to go to Silicon Valley and try to invest in startups by meeting with founders or things like that. But I mean, the, the, the path you just outlined is was incredible because I mean, you think about the one-two punch of that as well. People are funding these 401ks and their, their lifestyle of debt and all this by scrimping and saving, scrimping and saving with accumulation philosophy. So imagine scrimping and saving 35, 40 years then you retire only to find out that you only have enough money to scrimp and save until the day you die. Right. Like that's insane. <laughs> and it happens almost all the time, dude. That's the problem. Yeah. That's what people are facing. It's so sad. There's an article that changed my life in 2002 because look, admittedly 1998, 1999, I was a believer in the stock market. I mean, it was crushing. Sure. And I was putting people, but then in 2000 it started to go down. I didn't really know why or how long it would last. I was trying to learn about it. And then in 2002, there was an article. It was about this guy that was at the company that you mentioned earlier, Mass Mutual. Mm-hmm. And he was executive VP of the retirement services. So he's basically as high up as you could be on the retirement side of things. He retired in the year 2000. He took 10% of his retirement funds and he bought like a small company. And then he put the other 90% in aggressive funds and lost so much over the next two years that he was now driving a limo to earn a living. Wow. And that's the person that's supposed to be able to tell us how it works. Right. 
It's crazy, man. And it's scary too, because you laid out such a perfect path there. So if we get from paying off debt and loans and everything to investing in yourself to maybe eventually cash flow banking, right? And then investing in something, you know, this is why I love your concept of investor DNA. Yeah. Because what I found, and I want to dig into these questions from people, because what I found is everyone who has no experience in finance or investing of any kind or entrepreneurship or anything, they just go, well, I want to be rich. So 401k and I want to buy real estate. And I'm like, but you know nothing about real estate. What do you know about real estate? And they're like, well, nothing, but that's how people get rich. And I'm like, no, no, no. Real estate keeps wealthy people wealthy. It very rarely makes them wealthy, right? Am I right about that? I got my ass kicked in real estate because I had that same belief as the people you talked about. Right. It's but so common, if man. If you're not going to treat it like a business and it's not a full-time gig, prepare to lose money. Yes, I totally agree. You know, and yeah, there's like, there's people that store their money there. But the people that make a lot of money in real estate are people that treat real estate as a business and that's mm -hmm. their profession, right? I spoke at an event last April with uh, the guy's last name is Cummings. I think it's Bill Cummings. He's a billionaire out of Massachusetts mm -hmm. and he did it in real estate, but that's his business is just yes. real estate, right? So think about it. Someone goes, I'm going to do real estate, but they do it like in their free time. Yeah. So now they're going up against software that has been built that people are phenomenal at analyzing whether these deals and mm. with people that get tons of deal flow or people that have a lot of people that want to partner or buy or like, cause like, you know, I've been on Kiyosaki's podcast a couple of times and done some interviews with him. And like, he's got a lot of people in his database. If he wants to sell his real estate, he's got a lot bigger group of people willing to buy than your average investor. He's in his seventies, still going to real estate seminars. Yeah. He's got real estate partners. So that's the only thing that they do. So to think that we're going to do this as a part-time venture is a pipe dream and it's going to put people in harm's way. So you better get educated about it. And then there's other people who just want to put it in funds with real estate, man. I look, I had a hard money lending fund that we just struggled with. And I felt like I was more knowledgeable than most, but 2008 made it really complicated and difficult on us. I had in 2000, a hard money lending fund. I was referring people to, and they got all their money back and were made whole, but not at the time frame they were supposed to. And they didn't earn interest because it just doesn't always go according to plan. Yeah. And so it's like, if you want to be passive in real estate, there's a lot of risk. If you're going to be active, it better be your main gig. Yes. And outside of that, just plan on having some really hard lessons. I totally agree, man. And it goes that way for anything. Cause you look at like um, crypto, right? Like everybody got into crypto, people buying crypto who don't know what blockchain technology is. Right. And most people lost their ass. Yeah. You hear a couple stories of the crypto millionaires. Most people lost their ass when it plummeted. Yeah. I know. I know a few of them that did really well. Um, sure. You know, a handful, some that did really, really well. Uh, actually probably 10, but I know a lot more that didn't do well. Absolutely. More. And dude, I got to tell you, that was the hardest thing for me not to jump in on. <laughs> I was dreaming about it. I was, and I, I once, I called my, when it was still in the, I don't know, it still hadn't hit triple figures. It was still really cheap. I called my, my account and I'm like, ah, I'm going to put 25 grand in a Bitcoin. And my account knows me well and goes, explain Bitcoin. <laughs> and I was like, because my rule is if I can't explain it in a paragraph or less, I don't know what I'm doing. And uh, so we didn't do it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I calculated what that was at its height. And I was like, it was really hard on me for a minute. And I was like, I have a real business. I've got real, you know, I got real value I'm creating. Like, and I finally got over it. 
And it, it would have been a bad thing, I think, for me to get in it because it would have created a gambler's mentality because I would have involved in something I knew very little about. I made a lot of money on it. Mm-hmm. Where my co-author of Five Day Weekend, that dude's made a boatload in crypto, but he had his own, he had his own mind in Iceland. You know, exactly. he was involved early on. He's still- And that's who you're up against. Yeah. And I'm like, he's always talking about how he's selling the picks and shovels and everybody else is speculating for the gold. So he, you know, he did well because he was pretty intelligent about how he did it. And yeah, and he's studying it all the time. And, you know, and he, dude, he, he wrote it off a couple of times. He had his original amount of Bitcoin stolen. Wow. Right. It was a wild west. And then he had to, you know, he had to go rebuild it and uh, find out the most secure ways to handle all this stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. People look at all of it. It's, it's the stock market. How do I get involved in the stock market? Why? Why do you want to? What do you know about it? Crypto. How do I get involved in crypto? Why? Why do you want to? What do you know about it? And then the real estate thing I found you and I have been around some of the world's best entrepreneurs. I'll see these guys even, they're making millions of dollars on Amazon, right? And then they will hire somebody whose job is to go find the best deals, flip houses, they buy that house, and then there's a management company managing it for them. So rather than them learning this learning curve of real estate, they hire a professional that does this for a living. They might own six or seven properties. They're really just parking the wealth that they made from their cash flow company. Yeah. You know, and it's a totally different scenario. Yeah. So you mentioned baby bathwater, which is a, mm-hmm. a thing that we've both been in. I remember going and speaking in Croatia and then I was on a panel and I met one of these real estate guys and I usually don't like, I don't know. I'm always going to see eye to eye, but I totally saw eye to eye, like the, the number of deals he was turning down, how he was talking to people, loves cash flow banking. Like, and you know, he's had a good success because he's built a system, right? you know, and, and understands where to capitalize on the inefficiencies and, if you're going to get in real estate, I just did a video with the 15 main things you need to be aware of before you get involved in real estate. It's not out yet on YouTube, but, but um, you know, it's like make money on the buy so that you buy it at a, at a discounted value and you can turn around and sell it because someone's in a distressed, uncertain situation and you have a lot more certainty around it. Get cash flow from day one. That's going to mitigate your risk substantially, right? Mm-hmm. And invest in what you know. Don't try to be good at fix and flips and then commercial and then uh, you know, uh, a, a fourplex and then a resident, like get good at one area, dial that in, be profitable there and make sure you've got certain amounts of liquidity and understanding around what you're doing before you just dive in. Yeah. I couldn't agree more, man. That was one of the questions we had. So I don't, I don't want to monopolize all your time. I know I've kept you for a while, man, but I really appreciate you doing this. I appreciate you reading all my stuff, implementing it, being a living example of it, you know, uh, it's good emailing back and forth a couple times when uh, when uh, Hollis told me you were in baby bathwater and then yeah. you know, and then uh, you know Rob said great things about you as well. So I love it, man. You've been super hands on and accessible too. So that means a lot to anytime someone's that way. It's just it's awesome. So can I pick your brain on a couple user questions? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. So the first one, and this one's huge, and I'm interested in this selfishly too because I know what it means for me as an entrepreneur. But this is the concept of taxes. So you're an expert in helping people stop the leaks, like you say, like 10% of people's income is going to unnecessary taxes and all these things. But my question is, I know where you stand on this for entrepreneurs. What about the average W-2 worker? Are they overpaying taxes as well? Not as likely that they are because it's kind of, they just have to pay what they pay. Okay. Here's the big mistake a W-2 earner has when they get a tax refund. It means that you just gave the government a interest-free loan. So you want to change your exemption so you don't, you know, you want to keep it within a thousand dollars that you would either owe or that they would owe back to you so that you can keep that money working for you along the way. Okay. Yeah. I heard a scary statistic that it was like 
60 plus percent of the population didn't realize that their tax refund was their own money coming back to them. Yeah. They thought the government was paying them. I was like, oh no, this is brutal. <laughs> Gotta help people, man. They're doing the best they can, but ah, oh, man. It's just like nutrition, man. It's just like nutrition. The, wor the world has tried to make it complex. The institutions want it to be confusing, you know? Uh, absolutely. So another one we had was, um, this was from a, a mama who needs to buy a van, but she's in her 30s. And she says, what do you say to someone who's never played the game? So now she's in her 30s, has zero debt, but zero credit as well. How can she go from no credit to enough credit to buy a big purchase like a van? Apply for three to five credit cards all on the same day so that it only looks like one inquiry. And even if you're not going to use them frequently, just use them once a quarter. Charge pay it off. It'll build credit depth. Okay. Okay. Um, that's super helpful. That'll help you to go get a loan for a vehicle. Beautiful. Yep. That's awesome. So we talked a bit about debt. Um, this person had a specific question about student loan debt, which we talked about. This is very common. So she says that she has been putting off these student loans with income-based deferments, but obviously she's accumulating interest. Is this a good way to tackle this or should she be trying something different? Depends on your interest. Are you earning a higher interest rate than what you're paying on that deferment? No big deal. If you're not saving money and you're just accumulating that deferment, maybe you need to start making a payment towards it. But I talked to Tim Carden, who's one of your you know coaches, and he says most of their strategies around student loans are just making sure that they get the lowest interest rate possible. And then old student loans, it seems like it's easy for people to out earn. Newer student loans are higher interest rates, so they're just getting people to pay them down. Cool. So again, the idea of if you can out earn that interest rate, you're okay. So the next question we had was about allocating income. This person has heard a concept of allocating savings called the 50-30-20 rule, which is 50% bills, 30% fun, and 20% savings. How does this compare to your allocation? That's a little high on the savings compared to my allocation. I'm on 15%. I'm on okay. And uh, I don't differentiate after that on the remainder money. It's just after you've done 15%, 3% for your guilt-free spending, and then the, you know, the rest of the 82% to live on. And, you know, my, mine is definitely much higher on the fun side than it is on the other piece. Okay. Good to know. You get a lot more money coming in. You got a lot more options. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So the next one is about investing for kids. Um, and I know this was touched on a bit in, in uh, the Bank on Yourself program as well, this cash flow banking thing. So I'm interested to get your take here. Um, this is another mom who says she has a UTMA savings account for her 10-year-old with less than 3K in it, and she's contributing $100 a month. Should she continue this or is there something better? Yeah, it's cool that she's doing that. I like to see that like that takes real love and thought and being deliberate to do that for you know 100 bucks a month. And you got some money in there for your, for your child. So that's awesome. What I do, I don't know if it's better, but I, I actually, because I'm a business owner, I hire my kids. I can pay the, them up to $1,000 a month or 12000 a year, tax deductible to me and tax free to them. Mm. And then I actually put that into cash flow banking under their name, but I own the policy. I remember you talking about that. Yeah. That's brilliant. I love that idea. There's a lot of those weird little tax things. Like I can, you know, I can have business events at my house 14 days a year. 14 days, yeah. Yeah. 
Such cool little things like that, man. So we had a question about the stock market, but we just talked about that a bit and the correction and all these things. Yeah. So this other person has an interesting question. This is the last one I'll I'll, I'll take from the, the, the clients with you. But it's basically on the psychology of investors. So she cited Black Monday, this event in 1987, where everybody panicked. And these were all professional investors. So like you talked about, you know a lot more about the philosophy and psychology and those things. Does it concern you at all that we now live in a world where just any average Joe on the street can like sign up for an E-Trade account and trade stocks. How does that change things? Does that make things more volatile than it was back then? No, because there's something that's way worse and it's the uh, supercomputer. So I read a book called uh, Flash Boys and Flash Boys talks about the advent of building this fiber optic system where when you go to buy in the stock market with your average Joe that has a Ameritrade account, a flash trade comes in, bumps the price and skims you. Whoa. And so there were flash crashes that we saw where we would see hours of the of a trade just going like the market just diving and then coming back. That's a flash crash because of the supercomputers and the things that were happening. And people had no clue what was going on until someone out of uh, uh, the Royal Bank in Canada finally figured it out. Because what happened is you have to go slow with your trade to find out what was happening underneath it and everything was too quick. So they could, it would happen so fast. They couldn't even see it. But when they got slower, they would see these people fishing to mark the price up when you're trying to buy. So the flash crashes have had more impact than your average investor getting in there because of the amount of money that they're dealing with. So when major institutions sell, like the, the thing is there was something called the reciprocal desk. So the reciprocal desk, um, if we go back to 2008, Let's say Lehman Brothers, let's say that they needed to, you know, do a trade, but they were short on cash. So they could actually go to the reciprocal desk, they would give them the money until the trade happened and their liquidity came through. And that worked for 100 years until it didn't, when they were finally like, don't give it to them. And all of a sudden, they get in trouble, everybody shorts their stock, meaning they're selling it as if it's going to go down, and it mm -hmm. kills the account. So that happened to, you know, multiple companies, uh, you know, Lehman and, and those guys. And so I feel like some of these things, they work until they don't, you know? Yeah. And it's a matter of time, you know, uh, could we have what happened on Black Monday back in 1987? Absolutely, because major institutions that choose to do what's called a naked short sell, mm -hmm. a naked short sell is they could just, they could just drive a stock all the way down and, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, there's not enough uh, protections around that. And so that's part of what we saw with some of the major drops in 2008. Um, you know, and yeah, I, I just don't invest in the stock market for a number of reasons. Number one, the fiduciary responsibility of a CEO of a publicly traded company is to the shareholders, not to the employees and not to the customers. Right. And so my problem is we continue to have corporate greed and pressures of stockholders creating short-term thinking at the expense of the population. Yeah. So I don't like to fund public companies because even our beloved Warren Buffett that is quotable and cute as hell for an old man, but the bottom line is ruthless as hell when it comes to business. Of course. They buy a company, they strip that company to the bare minimum employees that it requires to produce the results. So they build that stock value on the back of employees who actually have families and a life that they now have to suffer because now mm. a shareholder who just put money in there and sits back and collects more than they could ever spend. I just don't like that. 
I like the original intent of the stock market, raising capital for companies that needed the amount of money to build that big of an infrastructure so they can go public to raise that capital. Now, why do people go public? To cash out. Mm-hmm. And you know what? I don't love these companies that have ma- major negative cash flow, WeWork, Uber, Lyft, that are then going to go public and cash out when they haven't even proven the model to be cash positive. So I do not participate in the stock market at all. Zero dollars. None. That's such a good point, man. I really didn't even think about it from a philosophical standpoint like that. I mean, I I look at it as like, I don't want to be up against supercomputers and people who this is their full-time job. But damn, yeah, that just hit me like a ton of bricks. That's a really good point. Dude, I was just at this event and uh, and this woman sitting next to me was a day trader. And I I was like, I want to be respectful in my question, but it's a true question. I said, you do day trading. Why? She's like, because it provides me a good lifestyle. I'm like, yeah, I get what it does for you. What does it do for the world? Mm. She's like, well, it provides me a way to earn money no matter where I live. I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's you. But does it bring liquidity to the market? Or is it simply you're smarter than someone else, so you take their money? Wow. And then my wife said, my wife grabbed my knee like, it's yeah. shut up, you're going to make her cry. And, but it was, it was a serious question. Yeah. It was yeah. like, why do things if we don't know the value it provides to multiple people? Right. It goes back to our zero-sum game. We're not living in a winner versus loser. We can all win, but we have to have that mindset. It's so true, man. And it's it really, I didn't really wasn't thinking about it like that because last week with the crazy sell-off, like I have some additional cash. That's the first thing I'll say too. If you're going to invest in stocks, make sure you have your, your foundation finances set, yeah. hopefully some cash flow banking and everything. Only spend money you're willing to lose. But I looked at it as a game. I said, oh, some stocks are discounted and I grabbed some and I've already made a great return on that money. I used trailing stops to do that, which was, yeah, I talked to Tim about it and everything. Yeah. But man, you got me second guessing, dude. <laughs> I, I didn't think about it that way because I care so much about what I do as a company. I get my life, I get that energy that I'm not spending buying stocks to put into things that matter to me. Yeah. Writing books, filming videos, spending time with my family. Like, dude, I could probably, okay, I'll, I'll be candid. Okay. I could be worth four times more than I am right now if I sold the stock market. Can you imagine if we sold you stock market shit? I get paid so much more on you. Yeah. And you, you just, you have your account with this forever. And I get paid every month, whether it makes money or not. Right now, how do we get paid? You write us a check. Yeah. That's the only way I make money is you writing us a check. Yeah, that's it. You have to know that you're paying us yep. versus having it automatically come out. But you know what? I know better. And my life's still pretty fucking amazing. Yeah. So I don't need to go sell out to make more money. I make enough to have the life that I want. Yeah. Why do I need to go sell out my energy to chase more if it doesn't really fulfill me more? Dude, I'll give you a great example of this because, and I've talked to Rob about this as well. Rob and I have talked about like the mission versus making money because him and I both are like, why are we not as good at making money as these other people? But I have had multiple times where companies will approach me and be like, hey, you need to just make your company an MLM, make it a pyramid scheme. And you will make five times more money than you're making like within year one. And I'm, I just won't, I'm like, no, I refuse to do that. But I didn't think about it on the back end. I might be investing in companies in the stock market that are making decisions that I don't agree with morally. Right. And I, and what's nice is we can all make a good living without having to sell out. Sure. And in the long term, we might not suffer major losses when we were disconnected from the outcomes. Right. So Our problem is not a lack of opportunity, man. Our problem is a lack of discernment between opportunities and distractions. And some money-making things are merely a distraction, even if they make money. Dude, spot on. (laughs) Yes, I love that. I love that, man. 
Duh, thank you for the reminder. That's a big deal. But anyway, dude, I know I don't want to take up all your day here, but thanks, man. Yeah, I appreciate it. This is fun. It's good getting to know you. Yeah, man. So just, uh, I mean, there's a ton of good tidbits in there, tons of value for everybody, but if they want to continue and connect with you, like what's the best way for them to get connected with you? Wealthfactory.com forward slash podcast has some really cool assets, or they can text 801-503-9667, 801-503-9667 and put WWRD in the subject line. The downloads on me of what would the Rockefellers do? It's my gift. If they want a physical copy, they can, you know, pay for the shipping and handling and I'll pay for the, the printing of the book. So 801-503-9667, WWRD in the subject line. Beautiful, man. I love it. And I'll include all that in the show notes. We'll make it easy for people. Thanks. And I highly recommend the book. So Garrett, thanks again, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Hey, really good to you know be on and I really enjoyed our time together, man. Have a great day. All right, man. You too. Thank you. All right, everybody. That is it. I am still having a hard time wrapping my head around the sheer amount of information and value that was provided in that episode. And I just hope you can see it as clearly as I can. The amount of just golden nuggets just thrown everywhere in this entire episode. The things that came out of Garrett's mouth are truly life-changing if you allow them to be. And obviously, you guys know I'm a big fan of his. I'm a big fan of Wealth Factory. Full disclosure, I am a client of Wealth Factory. So I'm completely bought in on this, but I can tell you guys right now that since I started working with them, I think it was about eight or nine months ago, my entire financial situation has changed completely. And we talk about these things like financial independence, financial freedom, all the things we mentioned in the episode. I am very, very close to achieving all of those things. And I've been working with these guys for less than a year. It's staggering. So anyway, take full advantage of all the resources that we've given you here. Make sure you check out wealthfactory.com slash podcast, wealthfactory.com slash podcast, and swing by the show notes at clovis.show. That will be at clovis.show slash wealthfactory factory clovis.show slash wealth factory thank you so much for listening somewhere, somewhere. But I my eyes and lost my way